Thank you so much for joining The Broken Road to Mental Health in Life and in Business. I am your host, Sharon Feckety, the author of The Broken Road to Mental Health in Life and in Business. I hope you will go on Amazon and purchase the book or download it on Audible and listen to the book so you can get some more insight as to why I decided to start this podcast show a few years ago and continue the conversation. You're going to hear from professionals. You're going to hear from people with lived experience, those that struggle with anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation. Uh, You're going to listen to people that have recovered. Uh, You're going to hear resources about how you can navigate through this broken road to mental health and life in a business. And you will certainly be hearing me talk about the importance of having this discussion in business today. That is what I speak about at conferences, and I hope that you will take it seriously. We need to speak more about mental health in the workplace. So thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. Please be sure to tell somebody you know that might be struggling to subscribe, to listen, to watch and share it with others. You are not alone on this broken road to mental health. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the broken road. Welcome back to the broken road. I'm just glad that you're on it. As I always sign my book, um, I'm so glad this broken road led me to you. So I've never said that before on this show. And I've had this show since 2020. So I'm glad that I said that today, because it is true. I'm always glad that the broken road has led me to you. And today, I'm so glad that it has led me to Thais Gibson, who is many, many things. But I will start by saying the founder of Gibson Integrated Attachment Theory, keynote speaker on Google International Women's Day, like baller, hello, go girl, best-selling author, all the things. So first and foremost, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm I'm excited to be here with you. I'm excited to have this chat. As always, I always do a little chit chat before, and I always say the same thing. I should record that, and I don't, because it's usually the best part. But um, we're going to just have a girl to girl conversation about what this broken road has been like. I'd like to start there. Um, I'd like to find out a little bit about who you are and what has led you to the great work that you're doing today. Yeah, thank you for for asking. So I guess a little bit about my backstory is I'm really interested in in psychology, personal development, and kind of always was at a young age. Um, And I came from a home that had a lot of challenge and a lot of turmoil in it um, and grew up kind of being like, why are things like this when they could be different? Mm -hmm. Um, And I was a very sensitive child. So I think I really internalized and sponge a lot of that stuff up and and, you know, thought, okay, I'm going to go to school for psychology and, and definitely had an outlet growing up, which was to play soccer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, eventually ended up getting like a, a soccer scholarship um, in, in a D1 school and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't a great path there. It was, you know, just before my scouting year, um, I had to have knee surgery and um, had knee surgery, you know, was obviously prescribed opiates. And like immediately I knew like, oh, this yeah. is making my life easier. Like it just had this hold on me immediately. Mm. And it scared me because I didn't, first of all, it was like just before my 15th birthday. Mm. And, you know, so I was basically 15 as I started this, this struggle. And it was sort of like, I didn't know anybody going through something like that. I didn't know like what was happening to me. I didn't even know that much about like addiction as a whole. And just knew that this was something that like, I was not going to give up when I ran out 
and, um, you know, ultimately knew somebody in my high school who was selling them a bunch, you know, got to know somebody a couple of years older than me and all these different things. Anyways, um, it led me down this really intense struggle for about six years with opiates and, um, you know, really, really like, I, I, I couldn't understand on one level, like what was happening to me. And so I would journal about it at night and I would be like, okay, I'm going to, you know, delete her, her phone number. I'm going to avoid her in the hallway. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to chew gum to distract me. Like I would just come up with, you know, whatever strategies you're trying to come up with as like a 15 year old on this sort of journey and um, didn't know anything and, and didn't really feel like I had anybody to talk to about it. And, you know, before that was a great student and sort of a high achiever and was like, what is going on inside of me? Um, so I was sort of high functioning, like I was able to hide it fairly well from the outside world and most people um, did get a soccer scholarship, did go to school and <laughs> was, you know, maybe seeming okay on the outside, but on the inside, my inside world was a terrible, terrible mess. Like I just like everything was pain and suffering and, and just barely keeping it together by a thread. And, um, and I was in a, a psychology class one day, as I was sort of mentioning to you, and somebody said to me who sort of became like a friend and mentor in my life, the conscious mind can't outwill or overpower the subconscious mind. And mm. for me, like that was such a, like, life-changing. Like if I ever had one life-changing moment in my entire life, it was that. And it was this description finally of like every day that I would tell myself like, okay, I'm going to change. I'm going to stop doing this. I'm going to avoid this person, do this thing. And I would just repeat these patterns all the time, all the time. And there's a lot of self-loathing that comes from that, right? There's a lot of like, you feel so helpless and powerless to yourself and you, you kind of hate yourself because you're like, Hey, like, and I was so hard on myself about it too. Like what's wrong with me? Why am I so weak? Like, why am I so powerless? Like all these different sorts of feelings. Mm. And, um, and so that to me, I was like, whatever that is, I have to go find out, like, that's going to give me the answers. And so at that point that that happens, um, I had done inpatient rehab, I had done outpatient rehab. I had been to AA meetings, NA meetings. I mean, I'd done how old were you at that time? I had to be, I want to say 19 at the time. It's a tough time and regardless, right? I mean, that, it's just a, a tough age, couple, a knee injury, a soccer scholarship. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and it's funny because it was like, I would go and do stuff in the summer. So I went to school at 17. So yeah, I think I was either 19, I think I was 19 years old and, um, and nothing worked. Like I would go in the summers and try to figure out stuff between the school year and, and just mm. nothing was working for me. And so um, it was like, okay, this is, I just knew that was going to be sort of the key that unlocked stuff. So I went down like this whole rabbit hole of learning about the subconscious mind. And one of the first things that I kind of realized is like, okay, I'm trying to numb pain because I am in pain, you know? And so this is what this is doing for me. No wonder it's not just a painkiller to the degree of it being something physical, but it's actually this like emotional numbness that I'm seeking out and this relief from like what's going on inside of me. And so I realized, okay, I have to process like whatever's there. So I got really, really like, I pretty much just got addicted to learning after that. Like it, I wasn't sober, a bad thing. By any means. but I started <laughs> learning about like all this, like unprocessed trauma and how to work through these different things. And just went down like the certification rabbit hole while I was in school. And, um, one of the first like big certifications I did was this like year long, um, hypnotherapy certification just to learn about how the subconscious mind works. And so it was really, really powerful for me and ultimately led to 
me getting sober and, mm-hmm. and actually being in a place where I was like able to release a lot of that stuff and, and go in a different direction. Um, and it's funny. Cause I mean, it's been like, you know, 12 years, 13 years now. And, and, um, I I'm in this position where, you know, I, I had my appendix out a couple of years ago, have to take painkillers was in a, a bad accident a few years before that, where a car hit me and my mom when we were walking, which was pretty crazy. And like both times, like took painkillers for a day or two. They sat in my home, didn't even like think about it. Eventually yeah. flashed them because I was like, oh, these probably shouldn't sit in my home, but did, it had no hold, no power. And I think it speaks to, and, and I want to be really mindful that that's not me saying, oh, if somebody's sober, go try that. You know, that's definitely not what I'm recommending, but I think there's a lot of power in understanding like what the subconscious mind is all about. And, yeah. you know, I will say one other thing, which is what stood out to me is like, one of the things I started doing early on is I started meditating a lot mm. because I learned that, okay, if you want to observe your thoughts and understand like your autopilot subconscious self, you have to sit in a space where you're going to sit and observe. Mm-hmm. And one of the early lessons that I had in that process was like, no wonder I'm escaping myself all day. Cause I'm escaping, like I would sit and I would be in meditation and I would be like, this sucks. I can't do this. I really can't do anything. You know, I'm not really going to be, <laughs> be able to accomplish anything in my life. Like I'm worthless. I'm this, I'm not. And I realized like, okay, no wonder I'm trying to numb myself because like, think of like, once I started observing my own internal dialogue and how I was treating myself and talking to myself, it was like, well, this is crap. Like this mm-hmm. is terrible. I'm, I'm like traumatizing myself all day long, essentially. And so I realized like, okay, that's gotta go. Like if I'm going to be on this journey, no wonder, like this is where I ended up. So, um, anyways, led to a really, um, you know, powerful journey for me. And I'm actually really grateful for that experience at this point in my life, because it took me like into the relationship to myself and into understanding the mind and how it works. And, um, yeah. And then eventually started giving free workshops to people. Cause I was just so freaking excited when I got sober that I was like, oh my gosh, there's like, everybody needs to know about the subconscious mind. And and that led to me having a really busy practice really young and, um, ran that for about seven years. And then, um, let's take a breath for a second. I want to just break it down for just a second. So, um, because it's really such a a wonderful, maybe not so wonderful when you were in the thick of things, (laughs) it's a wonderful path at times, but, um, and I had mentioned to you prior to hitting record today that I think it is so powerful when, others are able to witness the before and understand how it has led to the after and the now and the present. Um, And I think that it is, it's really, really important uh, when you're doing the work that you're doing today, in my opinion, that there is some personal experiences, not to say that there can't be somebody great that's in the world of psychology or, or a therapist or a psychiatrist, but it certainly helps when there's some identification and some understanding about how somebody else feels. And I say that because it wasn't until when I was 21 that I met my father's uh, employee assistance program, uh, EAP counselor, and he shared with me that he was a heroin addict. And I wasn't a heroin addict, but I knew that he could identify with the fact that I was trying desperately to get out of pain and he was, and I, when he told me that, because he looked very, you know, he was in an office, he had a certificate on the wall. He was at New York hospital. He was, you know, counseling all of these really unbelievable people uh, at this prestigious hospital. You were a heroin addict. (laughs) 
tell me more. And then, you know, he was brave enough to ask me that question that changed my life. And there are these moments where we have these life changing. um, Somebody says something or somebody asks you something. So I understand what you're saying. You know, for me, it was, he asked me if I was having suicidal thoughts and I was, and I had never told anybody about that. I had been to two rehabs, a halfway house, a mental institution, which they told me was a sobering up station, but let's be real. It was a mental institution. And, you know, for somebody who was the same person as me that could relate so much to ask me such a profound question, I felt like the world just, you know, lifted. And now I was able to start the healing process because somebody had been brave enough to ask or been brave enough to say what they said to you. And then it led you down this path of, oh my God, now I have this. I want to tell everybody, nobody needs to be alone through this. They can change their lives. They can, um, they can experience wonderful moments, even though they've gone through, uh, this trauma as a young adult, which is also how I now call it after all of these years. But I think it's really impactful. So, so tell me, so you went in, you had all these, I mean, you're no joke. Like we'll have it in the show notes. You can click on her name and then it'll take you to all of the wonderful certifications that you've done. You've done a lot of schooling. Do you think that now, you know, you can, maybe nobody's ever asked you this, but do you think your personal experience or what you learned in school, which has been more (laughs) impactful? Now I know you could say both, but. No, no, by far and away, personal experience. I mean, Mm -hmm. by far and away. I mean, you know, I, there's something that you just mentioned and like, you know, that, that person who said, okay, I was a heroin addict, you know, leading up to addiction, there's pain, right? Like there's a lot of pain and that's why we're escaping ourselves so much, but addiction is also its unique form of pain. Like it's its own unique form of torture in a way. And not to, you know, seem so dramatic about it, but it's really hard. Like when you're in it, it's so, it's soul sucking, right? Like it just really is, is such a, a, you know, difficult thing. And, you know, I would say like, I went through a lot of the traditional route of schooling and all those different things. Um, I would say personal experience by far, because I, in that personal experience had to sit with myself and explore my mind and how it worked and how things are functioning and why I'm thinking the way that I did. And I would say like, absolutely taking a ton of certifications, like help me formalize sort of putting, cause I really took them originally just to figure out like my mind and, and to really support myself and like staying on this sober journey. And you know, went from this experience of, of, you know, the, the formal education is great, but it's limited. Like, and, and a lot of it isn't like very applicable. Like uh, there's a lot of practicality missing, like, Hey, give me the actual tools mm-hmm. to learn, to change these patterns. Like there's a lot of theory and there's, you know, and so I was seeking like the, the tangible so badly because I needed them. And, you know, one of the big pieces of feedback I get from people all the time, both in my client practice when I was running it and now in our school that we, we run is, um, is that people are like, Oh, there's actual tools here. Like there's actual tangible tools. It's like, yeah, (laughs) cause I had to figure them out for myself first. So then it became something I could apply. So, I mean, you know, I'm all for the, the traditional route of schooling, but I do think that there, there's a lot of stuff missing. I do think that there's a lot of limitations. I do think like, even if you just look at the background of like what gets determined in the curriculum, I mean, there's, 
you know, different, you know, the National Education Association in the U.S. is responsible for that. And sometimes that's lobbied by pharmaceutical companies or a big fund, fa- funder of the National Education Association. And I'm not saying that it's all this negative thing. There's a lot of great stuff in there. But, I mean, it's easier to prescribe pills yeah. for things than it is to actually go into like, hey, let's be solution oriented. Let's look at root cause rather than just treating symptoms. And I do think that there is a missing link there, maybe for that reason, probably Mm -hmm. along with many other reasons, it's probably not so simple and cut and dry, but yeah, I have personal experience by far and away. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, uh, it's so interesting because I feel like you too, I I joked with my girlfriend recently that I'm like a walking disclaimer. (laughs) I always feel like I have to put a disclaimer out for everything I'm about to say, because I too, we shared a little bit, you know, I, I was depressed at 21. I was put on 20 milligrams of Prozac. I haven't taken any medication since I was 21. I'm 50. And, and every time I say that, I'm like, that's not to say that I don't believe in medication. So I'm, I just don't want to give any more disclaimers. I think if anybody needs to know like who we really are, you could just go down the rabbit holes a little bit, but I do think that there's a lot of power in in understanding who you are and being able to relate to somebody else and and understanding how much power and light you give to the people that look at somebody who's homeless on the street and just think that like that's the life that they would choose. You know, I, I say to if somebody says, Oh my God, why doesn't that person just, you know, get a job? <laughs> I'm like, Well, you're looking at her. So yeah. that yeah. person is me. Yeah. So I, I understand why you would say such a, an ignorant thing, because it is very ignorant, but let's try to understand that, like you mentioned, you know, the addict is in pain, the person that is struggling um, with opioids or with alcohol, you know, it is, it's pain. And, and let's get to the root of that, like you mentioned. If you are a sober woman like me, you absolutely hate that there are no other options at that business event you have to go to, that happy hour event with no other choices except soda and water. You don't even really have a mocktail on the menu and I don't really trust it sometimes because I am a sober woman, no alcohol intake. Well, you are so lucky because if you live here in Tampa Bay, we have a beautiful space called Urban Flow that is a non-alcoholic beverage haven. So I'm just going to show you a few of my favorites if you're watching. This one is Hio. This one is Rockaway, obviously, because I'm from East Rockaway, Long Island, New York. And this one is Busty Lush. Okay, non-alcoholic beer, woman-owned. This one here is an example of a beer that I would not drink because it's got low alcohol, 0.5%, but I wouldn't touch a drop of alcohol. So I stick to the ones that are absolutely non-alcoholic and they're delicious and they're functional. And this space is right here in Tampa Bay. So if you're looking for a refreshing and a unique selection of functional drinks, oh my God, that are so delicious check out urban flow, baby. So let's talk a little bit about depression. Um, if you will, because I think that it wasn't until I was, um, 25 years sober and I'm 29 years sober now that I truly realized that my depression as a 21 year old was directly related to the trauma that I went through. I, nobody ever told me that, or if they told me, I certainly didn't hear them but I thought it was what I was told. So I was told I had a chemical imbalance. (laughs) I think a lot of people get told this story 
and that we're just going to give you this medication. And it, it separated me from who everybody else was, you know, like, I'm not like you because I have a chemical imbalance. And I used to wear it very proudly, you know, <laughs> I have a chemical imbalance. My doctor told me, and it wasn't until like, it's, it's embarrassing, but I've said it enough times that I don't really care anymore. But when I really wrote that book and I wrote through my trauma and realized like, of course I drank and drugged. And of course I was depressed. I had just endured all of this trauma. Like who wouldn't be sad, but who wouldn't want to leave the earth if you don't know. And anyway, I'm very curious as to your thoughts on depression itself. Okay. So I love this topic. So I also was on antidepressants, um, as a teenager for, for a few years and, um, uh, similar to yourself, like haven't been on any medication for the last decade, over a decade. Um, and, um, you know, when, when we look at this, this is something I learned on sort of my, my rabbit hole to try to understand things is, is first and foremost, there's two reasons we have negative emotions at, mm -hmm. at our core. One is that we have unmet needs. So let's say, for example, that I move to a new city, I don't know anybody, and I have this basic need as a human being for love and connection. Mm -hmm. I might feel the pain of loneliness, as an example, sure. because that's actually emotional feedback that's trying to get me to adapt, right? And, and this is working for us. I mean, this is how we know when we feel discomfort, for example, physiologically, we have hunger pains, we seek food, we have the discomfort of the cold on our skin, we seek shelter, like in this case, that also works emotionally. So we have unmet needs, we get this emotional feedback. When we emote, our emotions are essentially made up of neurochemical reactions. So if you've got lots of your needs met, then you're going to have more positively oriented emotions, more serotonin, more dopamine, more oxytocin if your human connection needs are met. And when we don't, we have an absence of that. And in fact, we can have more cortisol, norepinephrine responses, like more, more quote unquote negative neurochemicals, even though they serve a purpose in a specific time and place. The other side is the other reason we have negative emotions is because we have programs. Mm -hmm. So we go through our lives and every time we can't process a trauma or understand it, we make an inference about it. So let's just say like a really simple example, a child grows up in a home where there's a lot of criticism and they make an inference because the mind is wired for certainty. So it needs to understand like, why am I getting all this criticism when it doesn't feel good? Oh, it's because I'm not good enough or it's because I'm unloved or it's because, and so we give this meaning to our painful experiences and then we store that meaning. And then our subconscious mind literally stores all of the meaning and our subconscious then provides this lens that we essentially see and interact with the world through. So if we have a lot of painful experiences as children or in our upbringing, you know, or at any point in life, we make it mean things, right? I am unsafe. I will be betrayed. I am trapped. I'm helpless and powerless. I'm weak. I'm not good enough. There's these really, there's about 20 core pieces of meaning that we'll tend to give to traumatic events that can really be boiled back down to. And then what happens, right? Is if you were to watch it, it's like, I, I give the acronym BTEA. So we have these beliefs, right? I'm not good enough. I'm unlovable. You know, all these different things. These beliefs lead to patterns of thought throughout mm -hmm. the day. So if you imagine like the belief is a tree trunk, the thoughts are the tree branches. So I have this belief, let's pretend to keep it simple. I'm not good enough. So throughout the day, I'm probably going through society, walking around. Oh, I'm not interesting enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not funny enough. I'm not, you know, fill in the blanks. I'm not attractive enough. I'm not all these different things. And so we think roughly 60 to 70,000 thoughts per day, according to a university of Southern California's neuroimaging. Too many. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of them are negatively oriented because a lot wow. of them are based on these core beliefs that we have. When we are thinking those thoughts, I'm not this, I'm not that. How do we feel? 
Well, we feel bad. So we are emoting negative neurochemical reactions, right? Or an absence of positive ones. And so we have this dynamic. So the beliefs leads to thoughts, to emotions, to actions. Actually, neuroscience has proven every single decision we make is based on our emotional state. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we have this thread of events. So if you look, the only reasons that we're, we're feeling negative emotions are because we have these painful beliefs, which create a lot of painful internal dialogue and then emotions and then create a a chemical imbalance, or we have unmet needs that are doing the same thing. Now I will say, you know, of course there can be like physiological components to to depression, right? There can be a genetic predisposition. There can be uh, imbalances in your gut microbes, like, because obviously your gut's a huge place of uptaking serotonin. There can be physiological elements, but if you're not dealing with these things over here, Mm. then of course, you know, you're going to see a lot of different painful dynamics show up. So from purely an emotional perspective, rather than physiological, if you are not taking care of your needs, not being met, if you're not taking care of your internal dialogue and what you believe about yourself and your world and environment and reprogramming your relationship to those things, no wonder you have a neurochemical imbalance. And so what drives me a little bit nuts is I really believe antidepressants and certain pharmaceutical medications have a place in time. I do also believe that they are wildly overprescribed. And I also believe that there's a system where we are not having conversations about dealing with root cause while we treat the symptoms. And if you're just treating symptoms and we are not targeting root cause at the same time, we have a problem, right? Because what's actually happening. And I saw this with a lot of my, my clients over the years is people would come into me and they would be on just huge, huge amounts of antidepressants for decades and keep having to increase the amount and increase and increase because they weren't dealing with root cause. And then on top of that, you know, your body tends to foster a dependency and it can be trickier and trickier to, to wean off of even things like that. So not to mention like when you think of benzos or things that are anxiety, um, medications. So they have a time and place. And, and of course, right. It's, I, I believe in like, if somebody's really in a tough spot, sometimes we need that so that we can yes. then work on root cause. But unfortunately, those are disclaimer curl. The scroll is coming. <laughs> Here's the disclaimer scroll insert here. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so there's a time and place, but if we're not root, working on root cause while we only treat the symptoms, it's very problematic long-term. Can we take a breath after that? For sure. <laughs> it is. Um, it is maddening, especially for somebody like myself who works in the medical industry for 25 years. And I've been able to see a lot of great and I've been able to see a lot of really bad. And then also being a part of a recovery community where I too know so many people that have been just changing medications 10, 20, 30 years or never taking medication or, 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 you know, um, God, there's so many things about that, that I, I want, we'd need three and a half hours. <laughs> I'm pretty <laughs> sure. A lot of conversations about that. Right? Of because yeah. you even dropping in gut health. I mean, I, there's no way in the world that I would have ever thought or known many years ago that the, the only way for me to avoid ever feeling the way that I felt when I was 21 was to do all the things that I still to this day have to do. The fact that I still, and it's only gotten more like the mental health workout is so long and so deep. Like I even changed it last night from, I usually get up at 6 a.m. to do my strength training on Monday mornings, but now I'm getting up at 5.30 a.m. so I can extend my meditation before I do my outside exercise. It's almost exhausting taking care of yourself so much. 
but but it's it, there's there's this great quote and I know you're gonna super agree with it but but there's this great quote and I'm not even gonna bother trying to say the quote but it talks about like how you know working out is hard eating healthy is hard but you know what else is hard to feel like you have no energy all the time yes. to feel exhausted to not feel like you're healthy to lose your health like and it's like choose your hard yes so it's like sure it's exhausting in one sense because it's a big commitment but like the reality is it gives you your energy back and it's way easier to choose that path than it is to go down the other path as somebody who knows what it's like to really really suffer right like yeah. I pick that one all day every day for sure yeah and I I swear and I don't have any problem telling anybody this if one person had said anything against the medication that I took when I was 21, I would be thinking about how I was going to tackle you. <laughs> like what that saved my life. Now I'm not saying it didn't. I'm saying that, you know, the, I remember the moment I remember the moment I was told because now I'm sober, which means I'm in my head. I remember the moment they said they were going to give me a pill. I already felt better. Yeah. I was like, yes, bring me the pill, yeah. you know, and, but thank goodness. Right. And it really is so contingent upon who gets dropped in our lives. So for that moment that that person had said that thing to you, it changed the whole trajectory of your life. Really? I, I think, am I right? Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Huge catalyst that absolutely shifted everything. Right. And me too. Like I cannot believe that that person who I didn't even understand until 25 years later, when he asked me that question, how it was going to impact everything that I did and how I was going to work on myself and how I was going to be so understanding of how it's, we're all individuals and it takes something different for everybody, but please don't be fooled to think it is not a ton, a shit ton of work. Yeah. But I will say as well that at the same time, as you do that work, life gets different. Like it gets yes. easier and easier. I mean, if anybody's suffering, listening to it, like, I, I think it's so important too to realize like, yes, <laughs> it's a commitment. It takes time. And again, to your point, like, it doesn't mean don't take the medication. It means take the medication and work yes. on the root cause. So you don't have to foster this dependency long-term on something only treating symptoms. And as people actually do that work, I mean, geez, like, I know I can speak for myself, like, night and day in terms of how I feel on a daily basis and wake up with a feeling of well-being and, and yeah. fulfillment instead of this pain, this seeking and escaping and obsessing. Yeah. And, you know, all of that, you know, <laughs> there, there's, you know, there's, it's worthwhile work to be doing worthwhile. What are your thoughts on community when it comes to depression? Like how important is it for you that people are, are seeking out a community of whatever. It doesn't have to be a recovery community, just the word community. I'm, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. I think it's so powerful. I mean, I think there's a few things, right? Like I think, and this is changing, which is nice, but I think, uh, you know, first of all, sometimes there was like a stigma around mental health for, for quite a while. So if somebody is experiencing these things, I know at the time I was experiencing them, because I think it's really shifted and changed around the last 10 years. Um, and more and more so every day. But I know at, during my experience, I'm sure you had the same kind of experience of, oh, I'm like the only one going through this. Like I must be the only person. So you feel like you're on an island. And then if if we can't, 
you know, connect to people. Um, it's funny. There's the, the UK appointed uh, a loneliness minister because they, mm-hmm. they actually studied and, and, um, they, they demonstrated research shows essentially that being lonely and struggling with chronic loneliness is equivalent to smoking a pack of cigarettes a day for the impact mm-hmm. it has on your health. Mm-hmm. And, and then a lot of research was done out of that. And they talked about, okay, well, what creates people being lonely or not lonely? Mm-hmm. And it's that, um, it's not about how many connections you have. It's about the quality of your connection and the quality of connection has so much to do with vulnerability. Yeah. And so what's interesting is like, if you look at when you feel so alone and isolated in that, like, like I know I did, and I'm sure you probably mm-hmm. have the same experience totally. is like, you can't be vulnerable with anybody. Cause you're like, Oh, I'm alone in this. And everybody's going right. to judge me. And like, you feel it's you're, you're protected by this wall of shame that you have that you're carrying around. And so, you know, I think community, like mm-hmm. when you see that, okay, first of all, I'm not alone. Second of all, if there's people going through similar things and you can share and talk things through, I mean, that's extremely valuable, but then third, you know, community just as a whole, like we have a basic need for, for connection. And sometimes I think our own limiting beliefs about ourselves get in the way, like, Oh, I'll be disliked or I'll be rejected. But as people actually expose themselves to community, open up, actually practice being more vulnerable and truly sharing things, you know, they have a lot more connection that has a positive impact on mental health. It has a positive impact on your physical health. Um, so yeah, huge. I think it's absolutely important. So before we go today, tell me a little bit about this school, because I think I love, I love to hear like personal development, learning school online. It just sounds magical. Like I wanted to go to that school. I didn't want to actually go to college, but I definitely would have signed up for that school. So basically it's, um, it's just a whole bunch of different courses about different areas of life. So, so I wrote them all. Um, we have about 60 courses in there. We have courses on everything from like just literally reprogramming our subconscious mind, like 21 tools for subconscious reprogramming, um, mastering your emotions, somatic processing. So we can emotionally regulate, um, all about relationships, attachment styles, communication boundaries, like, you know, a whole bunch of different stuff in there. And really it's personal development for your subconscious mind. So everything in there is about like every tool that we have, we actually take it to the level of like how to affect your subconscious. Cause one thing that's really important to recognize is like your conscious mind is responsible for three to 5% of your your thoughts, your emotions, your decisions, your beliefs, and your subconscious is 95 to 97%. And so it's like, if we're trying to change, if we're trying to heal, if we want to actually see the needle move on stuff, we have to be targeting the subconscious mind. And so every tool that we have is like, okay, here's the tool, here's the idea, but then here's how you actually program it for yourself. Here's how you actually get it at that subconscious level. So um, the school happened because I I, uh, had a client-based practice for seven going on eight years and had a two-year wait list. And it was like, okay, this isn't reasonable and it doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. And so then went into this spot where it was like, okay, well, how do I package this and and put this online? Pause. Um, Did you feel burnt out from that? Yes. Um, I didn't realize it. I didn't actually realize you're not alone. I asked that that from my therapist friends that might be listening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I loved it. Like I just Mm -hmm. loved it so much. And it's funny, like looking back now, I realized that I had elements of being burnt out. Mm -hmm. And at the time it was like covered up by how excited I was, but to be perfectly honest, like it got easier as time went on because I got, I got better and I learned, but in the first two years specifically, I still had boundary work to do. So people would be like, this is really helping me. 
my brother is suicidal. Can you please help him? And I'd be like, sorry, I have no slots. And they'd be like, what about at 8 p.m.? Please, you said you leave at 8 p.m. Please, just one more, you know, just like oh. all these things. And I had a hard time saying no for the first couple of sure. years. Because you want to help. Yeah. Yeah. And because I liked it and I was really yeah. like excited to share. Mm. Um, so it was tricky, but I kind of was like hidden burnt out. Like I didn't really realize I was burnt out, but looking back now, I'm like, oh, wow. The first yeah. couple of years I definitely struggled with that. It got better as I got better with my boundaries as time went on. Um, but yeah, so, so eventually we were like, okay, I have a, a business partner, a friend of mine, and he was like, he's got a lot of experience in the online world. He's like, let's package this, let's put it online. Um, and so we started doing that and putting out YouTube content. And um, we've now been doing that for about four years. We have our four year anniversary coming up. And, and uh, yeah, we have about, we've had tens of thousands of students come through the program and, awesome. and uh, yeah, it's been a really exciting thing. Yeah. It's wonderful. And I love that because I do, I think that um, our healers are at a place right now where it's the busiest it's ever been, you yes. know, thank God. And also, oh my God, <laughs> like, where are we going? How are we going to allow our healers to have their own space? Um, because, you know, it's kind of like how I feel about doctors being involved in business. I feel the same way about, you know, mental health practitioners, anybody that's a healer in general, you know, now there's such a need for it, but how are you going to say no? Because I could totally, you know, okay, eight o'clock, what's one more? Well, what's one more at chipping away at your own um, serenity and peace of mind and an opportunity to, to live your own full life, you know? So it's a, it's a very interesting time right now and wonderful that you're able to help so many more people by putting it online. So uh, bravo to you for doing that because I'm sure there are people that are here in Tampa Bay, in Canada, in New York, and all over that want access and that they could have it. I think it's fantastic. So let's give a shout out to your your partner who knows all about how to do that too. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that could be friend. daunting. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I hope that you'll come back because there's so many topics that you cover that I'd really love to break down on this show. So I appreciate you and I, I wish you all the best. I would love to. And thank you for having me. This was so much fun to chat. Thank you. If you live here in Tampa Bay, we have a beautiful space called Urban Flow that is a non-alcoholic beverage haven. If you're looking for a refreshing and a unique selection of functional drinks, oh my God, that are so delicious, check out Urban Flow, baby.